Hey y'all, my name is Jonathan Martin and welcome to the Zeitcast. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so glad that I'm here. Good gracious. Um, some of you know the last few months I have crammed in every conceivable life transition. Got married, released a book, uh, moved here to Greencastle, Indiana to be chaplain, working with the Center for Spiritual Life at DePaul University, which has been a wild and magnificent ride. Uh, but I've so many things I've been eager to share with you. For those who've been around, thank you so much for your patience. I feel like I go around apologizing all the time, but I'm telling you, I have never had a more rich, more fruitful, more soulful time and really wanted to uh, wait till the time's right. Not, not wait till the time's right. More like let my soul catch up with my body because I'm experiencing so much story right now. I'm living so much story right now. And the conversation I'm about to share with you just felt like it was the right note uh, for this little reboot, for this leg of the journey on the Zeitcast. This felt like it was the one. There's so much that's been happening I want to share, but I want to drop you straight into the middle of this particular moment. So I don't want to give too much context um, in a way that would kind of ruin anything because I think we just need to lean into this moment. Uh, but if you'll indulge me, I do want to set us up at least this way. So part of what I get to do here at DePaul, uh, and this is the thing that I feel so privileged to get to do, um, I get to work with students and walk with students uh, from so many different faith traditions. And you know how it is when you get to sit and listen and hear uh, stories of others also experience stories that you thought you knew from a different point of view. It's transformative. And the conversation you're about to hear is one of those conversations that for me has been really transformative. Uh, we had the honor a few weeks ago here at DePaul uh, at the Center for Spiritual Life of being able to host Rabbi Sandy Eisenberg Sasso. Um, some of you may be aware of Rabbi Sasso's work. I know I've been aware from afar, uh, from places like On Being, uh, kind of seeing her around here and there. Uh, but it was such an extraordinary experience to be able to have her here. She did a talk uh, that night on the book of Jonah. Uh, it was called Inside and Outside Jonah's Well, Where Are You? And if you're a human with a pulse, I cannot imagine a station in life. I can't imagine a place or a time in life where this conversation would not be relevant for you, especially this idea of kind of rethinking of the belly of the whale in the Jonah story as womb or tomb. Uh, for all of us who are in transition, and when are we not in transition? Uh, this sense of maybe leaving one place or one sense of identity, but not yet fully arriving, not yet knowing what or who entirely uh, you're yet to become. I think this is the conversation that we need. As I'm recording this, we're smack dab in the middle of a very sacred, holy time for our Jewish community. Uh, we're right in the thick of Yom Kippur. Uh, got to be there alongside our Jewish community last night for our first service and again this morning for the morning service. Well, again, for the service tonight and for the breakfast meal. Uh, but for those of you who aren't uh, familiar with the tradition, and you'll find out more about this in the next few minutes, but Jonah is very significant for Yom Kippur. Uh, and you'll learn more about that as we go. I want to just throw you into the deep end here with Rabbi Sandy Eisenberg Sasso. But just before we do that, uh, let me just give you a little bit of a sense of where she comes from and what she does. So uh, Rabbi Sandy Sasso served as Rabbi of Congregation Beth Elzedek in Indianapolis from 1977 to 2013. She currently is the director of the Religion, Spirituality, and the Arts Initiative. Rabbi Sasso is active in the arts, civic, and interfaith communities and has written and lectured on women and spirituality and the discovery of the religious imagination in children. Uh, speaking of her work with children, she's written over 25 books. And one of the things I love the most is she has written the most artful, elegant books to children, but I really think are for all of us. Uh, in fact, I was on a plane a couple weeks ago and reading her most recent, uh, The Raven and the Dove, The Big Fish and the Stubborn Donkey, where she actually writes from the perspective of the animals in these, um, the, the, in, in these narratives in scripture absolutely gorgeous. I know you'll love that. I know she has a new book coming out in February, and I, I know you want to check that out. Um, by the way, her and her husband 
uh, were actually the first ordained couple in the history of Judaism. How remarkable is that? First ordained rabbi couple ever. Uh, she's just such a cool human being. And uh, you know, I like to talk a lot about wise guides. She certainly is one of those folks that you meet along the journey uh, that you want to stay connected to. So I hope this will be as illuminating for you as it has been for me. Um, oh, I didn't want to neglect to mention, you can connect with Rabbi Sasso's work uh, more deeply on the web at allaboutand.com. So I know you want to check that out. I'm not coming back around at the end or anything, so I'm doing all this right now. Uh, for those of you who are patrons who have stuck it out, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, I hope uh, the work that we do here in the next few uh, weeks will reward your patience because uh, I do feel like there's kind of a treasure trove in terms of just soulish things that are happening uh, that I'm very eager to share. One last thing I will mention, kind of a side project, haven't mentioned it anywhere else publicly, I don't think, haven't had the bandwidth to even, I'm, I'm just living the thing too much to even know how to talk about the thing. But I also right now am hosting a radio show. That's right, a live radio show at our campus radio station here, which is WGRE 91.5 FM. Here's the thing. I think some of this maybe sometimes you're able to listen to on the internet after the fact, but I don't know if that's always the case. I'm not actually sure if these are archived. So right now, the main thing I would know to direct you to do is actually to be able to listen live. Can you imagine that, having to listen to something live? I'll hopefully find a way to be able to connect to uh, you to this after the fact too, for the time being. The show is called Soul Music with Jonathan Martin. It is every Wednesday, that's from 5 to 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And assuming that not just everybody is listening within, you know, 45 hour, you know, or so uh, kind of radius of Greencastle, uh, you can listen online at WGRE.com if you want to check out Soul Music with Jonathan Martin. Hey, I feel like this conversation is soul music in and of itself. So excited for you to get to know Rabbi Sandy. Thanks so much for hanging around. And I hope uh, that you're able to fully enter in now into this imagery of uh, the, the belly of the well. Is it a womb or is it a tomb? Thanks so much for joining us on the Zeitcast. Well, welcome back to the Zeitcast. I am so thrilled and honored today to be able to have uh, Rabbi Sandy Eisenberg Sasso, who I had the great honor of being able to meet here at the DePaul Center for Spiritual Life uh, just over a week ago. She did just an extraordinary lecture on Jonah that I love so much. I'm like, I really want to be able to share this with, with everyone. Uh, so Rabbi Sandy, it's such a thrill to have you here. Thank you so much for taking this, this time to be with us. Well, very happy to be here and I enjoyed my time at DePaul. Well, it was, it really was, was such a treat to have you. And, um, we joked before about diving right into the, the deep end. Um, <laughs> Jonah's always been, uh, one of my, my favorite prophets, one of my favorite sections of, of, of scripture. And again, uh, just feeling this content is so remarkable. Maybe I'd l love to start it off this way in terms of you uh, talking about a little of your history with the text of Jonah. What, what were you sort of your earliest recollections of grappling with this story? Well, Jonah is a story that uh, Jews read in the synagogue on the Day of Atonement on Yom Kippur. So it is a well-known story. You go to the synagogue every holy day of Yom Kippur and you hear this narrative. Uh, and it's also a narrative about forgiveness. And since the holy day season is all about forgiving and being forgiven, this story of course resonates with me. But only recently I have delved more deeply into this narrative. I teach a seminar at IUPUI, Indiana University, Purdue University at Indianapolis on religion, spirituality, and the arts. We gather uh, 12 artists in visual arts, in writing, in music, in photography, and we study a particular piece of scripture through the eyes of all the art disciplines. And uh, last year, the, the, the text that we chose was Jonah. So I was able to look a little more deeply into this narrative, see how 
visual artists uh, dealt with it, see how poets dealt with it. And, and as you will see during our conversation, uh, it seemed the appropriate text for the years of quarantine. Mm. Oh, my goodness. So much so. And that's, I, I was struck um, by just how profound, both in terms of navigating the realities of, of quarantine, but also it's such a strange time now and such an in-between kind of, t- kind of time. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how this story has come alive uh, to you. Um, and of course, well, the lecture here, this whole idea of the well as womb or tomb, what wonderful imagery. I'd love for you to, to unpack that a bit. So I'm wondering if we should just do a quick summary yes. of the story. So we're all on the same page. Oh, please. That'd of course, be fantastic. Of course, I would say it's much better if you all read it uh, and not just count on my retelling, but I'll give you just a general idea. So God speaks to Jonah and says that he should go to Nineveh, a very great city, and preach to them because of their wickedness. And Jonah refuses, which is surprising for a prophet, saying, no, I'm not going to go, because the people of Nineveh were his enemies. And we'll talk a bit about that a little later. So what does Jonah do? Instead of going to Nineveh, he goes in the exact opposite direction. He runs away and he takes a ship to go even further. And God sends a big storm so that the ship seemed as though it was going to break apart. And the sailors don't know what to do. They throw things overboard. They lighten the ship. And finally, they say, well, where's Jonah? We can't find him. Maybe he could help us. And Jonah, of course, is asleep in the bottom of the ship, again, ignoring what he is called to do. And finally, Jonah says, okay, the reason there's a storm is because I am not following God's commands. You're going to have to throw me overboard. Reluctantly, um, they they do so. And as soon as he is in the water, uh, the storm ceases. As he's in the water, a big fish, which we often refer to as a whale, but the biblical story doesn't tell us what fish, a big fish swallows him. And he spends three days and three nights in that fish until finally um, he seems ready to go to Nineveh. The fish spits him out on the shores of Nineveh. He tells the people that they must repent or they will be destroyed. The people repent and they are saved. uh, Jonah is not happy. He goes outside the city and kind of sulks. And it's very hot and sunny, so God causes a tree to grow over him. And then shortly afterwards, the tree gets sick and dies. And Jonah is terribly unhappy. How could you do this to me? And God says, well, you care so much for this tree, which grew in a day and a night. Shouldn't you care for all the people of Nineveh? So that's a summary of the story. What I think is most interesting about it is that Um, it, you know, Jonah lives in the northern kingdom of Israel in the 8th century, and that is when uh, the setting for the book. However, it is written by an author uh, in the 5th century before the Common Era. And why is that so significant? Is because Nineveh destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel in the 5th century. And therefore, um, you know, Jonah is knows, because the author knows, that in fact, uh, Nineveh is going to destroy the northern kingdom. That's mm-hmm. where we get the 10 lost tribes. So we can understand why he wishes they wouldn't repent, because he figures if they're destroyed, the northern kingdom would have been saved. Mm-hmm. So you need to understand this from the point of view of Jonah. This is a big enemy. Mm. Um, and so he runs away. You wanted to talk a little bit about, um, oh, I wanted to address something, then we could talk about womb and tomb. Yeah. So it seems to me you find many references in the Bible to people being called to do something mm. and uh, they don't. So a couple of examples, you know, God asks Adam, where are you? after he eats from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And what does Adam do? He hides, 
right? He he's why does he hide? Why does he turn away from God? Because he's embarrassed and ashamed. Um, Moses is called to go uh, to Pharaoh and say, "Let my people go." Mm. And what does Moses do? He says, "No, not me." He resists. Why? Because he has no self-esteem. He thinks, "I can't do this." And even Jacob is called to ascend the ladder uh, in his dream, and he refuses because he is afraid. Uh, and then you have Jonah, the, the name meaning dove, a bird who flees, right? And what does he do? He runs away because he is angry. And I, I like those um, parallels because I think they refer to each of us. Yeah. That sometimes we are called to do something and we're too ashamed uh, to go forward. Uh, we, we don't think well enough of ourselves to follow it. Um, we uh, we flee, say, hey, not me, I'm going somewhere else, that's too much for me. Or we're just so afraid that we don't tackle it. So Jonah fits in that category of what we do when we are called upon to do something important. Mm. I love that so much. And that was one of the things that, um, uh, th that was so wonderful um, being present for the lecture here was just the sense of the universality of the story in that way. Because like on one level, um, it hits me as a person who's a chaplain now, has done a lot of pastoral work. So certainly there's been that sense of vocational calling and the many times and ways in my life where I felt myself running from some sort of a call in that way. But then, you know, I experience my own sense of vocation to write very much a sense of of calling. Uh, but even, you know, because I am a person who's so familiar with shame spiral, it hits me in things as mundane as uh, and I'm also very quick to talk about my ADHD in this way. But like if I feel like if I'm in a deficit communication wise, then, you know, if I didn't respond to the email yesterday, then I might not respond for three weeks precisely because I didn't yesterday. And now I feel so bad that I didn't that now, in fact, do just want to go somewhere and hide under a rock. So it's it's just wonderful to me how I feel like there's so many layers of like no matter where you are, there's a way that that sense of running away from a sense of, of, of duty, of, of calling, of even something that maybe you're passionate about uh, just, just seems well, so absolutely. universal. It, I think it applies to all of us at different times in our lives. Um, you know, we're, we're just too embarrassed or we don't think we have the capacity to do it or we're really angry. Mm -hmm. and, and Jonah was really angry because he knew what this Assyrian kingdom of Nineveh was going to do because he's writing after it happened, although it's set in a time earlier, right? So, you know, when you think somebody is really your enemy yeah. and is going to do you harm, can you go and ask that they repent and be forgiven? That That's mm. tough. Mm. You know, so I, that's what's so powerful about um, this story. But beyond that, you wanted to talk a little bit about the whale as womb or tomb, right? Yes, yes. So according to uh, rabbinic tradition within Judaism, the whale was created from the beginning of creation, already knowing that Jonah would refuse and he was set to swallow Jonah. Mm. So you could think of it as a tomb, right? I mean, if you're swallowed by a big fish, hey, that's it, you know, we're done. But in so many ways, um, it really isn't a tomb, it's a womb, mm. because it is in the body of the fish that Jonah uh, takes the time uh, and has the period of reflection where he decides, I know I don't want to do this, but I know I have to. Mm. So something, it's its kind of a rebirth of, of kind. And there are many um, artistic depictions of this story where uh, it actually looks like Jonah is curled up like in a fetal position mm. because this could be a time of death and destruction, but it could also be a time of transformation and rebirth. Mm. So is the womb negative or could it be positive? And, and you can go on both sides. I, I shared with the students from Bhopal, you know, two different readings, one from George Orwell and one from... Uh, Solomon Rushdie. Yes. And Solomon Rushdie, I actually have it here. I'm happy to share oh, it. Oh, please with you. do. That was so brilliant. So, Solomon Rushdie wrote something called Outside the Well. It's just an excerpt that I'm sharing. It was written in 1990. And he says, The truth is that there is no whale. Mm. Uh, we live in a world without hiding places. However much 
we may wish to return to the womb, we cannot be unborn. Either we can delude ourselves or we can do what human beings do instinctively when they realize that the womb is lost forever. Mm. We can make a devil of a racket, say, here I am, you're going to have to reckon with me. So in place of Jonah's womb, I am recommending the ancient tradition of making a big fuss, mm. as noisy a complaint about the world as is humanly possible. So that's a very powerful statement that, you know, we can't hide, uh, that we need to be out there. Uh, we can't return to our mother's womb uh, and that security. Um, however, you could look at it in a positive way. Do we need to go back uh, in order to find the resources to be able to go out in the world? Uh, so here's a quote actually written in 1940 by George Orwell called Inside the Well. For the fact is that being inside a well is a very comfortable, cozy, home-like thought. The whale's belly is simply a womb big enough for an adult. Mm. There you are in the dark with yards of blubber between yourself and reality, mm. able to keep an attitude of the completest indifference no matter what happens. Now you see George Orwell is not too Orwell is not too happy with that decision but many um, of the artists that uh, I took a look at and even some of the poetry also saw it as an important place to be mm -hmm. and the rabbinic interpreters of this text imagine that the whale takes Jonah all around the world mm -hmm. Uh, so he recognized how small he is in relation to all of creation and in fact takes him to where the temple is built and says, now you're at the temple, you need to pray. Mm. And he sees the world through the eyes of the fish like they are windows. Ooh. So this enclosure, you know, this sense of security allows him to think beyond his own anger and beyond himself. Mm. So you can look at this experience either negatively or positively. Mm. Clearly, the experience, it forced him to make a decision he was reluctant to make. Yes. I'm so, um, there's so much, Rabbi Sandy, that I just, um, the love about what you're doing there. I mean, the whole idea of sometimes the will could be a bit of, that you, you need a bit of insulation, that sometimes you need, to go into the belly of the well, and yet also, but maintaining the tension uh, with that, and sort of this, um, you know, like, hey, you need to make your noisy protest. There is, there is no place to go inside. One of the things I love about, and it it makes it makes sense to me in a way in terms of um, coming from your tradition and doing what you do. Like one of the reasons, and I was so teary when you were um, when you were lecturing the other week. One of the reasons I think that these these things hit me still so fresh is that as much as I love and cherish so many things about my Christian tradition at the same time, uh, especially kind of earlier in my life, a lot of my experiences being more within sort of a more fundamentalist, evangelist, kind of a, a evangelical-ish sort of context, um, not really having the resources to read stories like this this way. So, of course, going to the belly of the well is bad because it's connected to, to disobedience. And I realize now how much kind of Western, very dualistic, binary thinking I've had all my life in that way. One of the things I, I really wanted to ask you about today, since um, since you spoke that night, I thought so much about, I read a book a few years ago that really, uh, I feel like kind of changed the trajectory of my life. Uh, Catherine Dowling Singh uh, wrote this book, The Grace in Dying, which she was a PhD hospice worker, and it was like for the first time I really saw differently as she talks about how there's a kind of grace in the dying process, um, having walked with so many people through it, that even though it's terrible and the body goes through the phases of denial and, you know, it's it's embarrassing to have someone care for you in this way, that most people, if they're given time to die, whether it's a, a short window or a long one, do experience a kind of release, a kind of a kind of grace in the dying process. And kind of reframing then even the question of, uh, you know, the, the challenge of Jesus of losing your life to find it. And um, so I, I this whole notion of is it possible to live with the qualities of the dying while we're still alive? And I think it, just that notion of the grace in dying, I'm, I'm so struck by this idea that maybe 
you know, womb or tomb, maybe sometimes it really is womb and tomb, you know, like death that also feels like, like beginning. Do, do you see a sense of like kind of, uh, of, of a cycle there of kind of the, the womb and tomb maybe being bonded to each other in that way? Yeah. So it's very interesting. If you uh, look at the first chapters of Genesis and creation in parallel with the Jonah story, it, it says there was a great home. God's spirit, mm. you know, uh, went over this great depth and that the word uses to home, uh, mm. chaos. And, and that, so, and that was the beginning of creation out of this mess, this chaos. Yeah. The same word is used for Jonah when mm. he goes into the well, he goes into the deep depths depths, I mean, um, and so there is a sense in which this chaos uh, and return to before creation is necessary for a new creation. So there's a a very interesting parallel Hebraically because they're using the same word, which is surprising. Mm. Um, So his going in the depths is like God's spirit, you know, hovering over the depths and begins creation. And once he's there, he begins to to create something new mm. uh, in terms of who he is and what he needs to do. Mm. Oh, that's so powerful. And I, you know, especially as someone who finds myself always still resisting the end of anything. I mean, I dread the end of anything and uh, even the end of a great book, I, you know, you're so sad, but this notion that sometimes um, you kind of have to get to the end to get to the place again, where there's the kind of chaos where new life can come uh, that, that just, um, that speaks to me on so many levels. I'm curious right now as to maybe what you do with that, just in terms of the moment we're in culturally that I think for, for so many people is a frightening one where it feels like the end of certain systems and structures functioning the way that they have before. And there's things about that that feel wild and, and scary. Um, but I'm curious right now, how you would map this story kind of onto the the grid of just the reality that we're living in now where there's both fear, but maybe also the potential for, for new life to come in the end of, of the world as we've known it. So there's this wonderful uh, quote uh, that I uh, always use that says, um, hopelessness is a failure of the imagination. And I think that many people are feeling hopeless. Mm. Uh, you know, with COVID, although that's abating, it's it's still prevalent, and you know, lots of people lost family during that time. Um, with the, you know, issues in government and representation and voting, and so much changing, and you know, the polarization of our country. Um, that also, uh, you know, connects to this story that uh, where in all that do you find hope? Mm. Uh, And, you know, Jonah ultimately found it, although I must admit he wasn't particularly happy. uh, He also found it inside the whale because he was happy to drown in the water. When he asked the, the sailors to throw him overboard. He really had a death wish. Mm. He would rather die than have to face Nineveh. And what the whale or the big fish uh, gave him the opportunity to rethink that. Uh, You know, so I, you know, so many of us are like feeling, well, we don't know what else to do. We've done everything we know how, and um, how do we move forward? And so, you know, this says hmm, you can find hope somewhere. Mm. Um, we just have to be a little more creative and a little more imaginative. That doesn't mean it's it's easy. Mm. I mean, one of the things we discussed when we studied this text in my seminar, because we could not meet in person at that time, COVID was still pretty rampant, and we met online, was wasn't being in the well like COVID meaning we were totally isolated. We could not be with other people. Uh, We couldn't be in community. And what do you do when you are isolated Mm -hmm. like that? And some of us even today, you know, even though we're beginning to connect with them, feel isolated, you know, not sure we have people who who agree with us, you know, who can build our community because we're so fragmented. Um, And so there's a number of poets 
poems that I'm very, uh, I, I like a great deal that talk about what you do when you're in the belly of mm-hmm. the whale. Mm-hmm. There is, a, I need to find that, but I, I just, just love that poem. This is something by Dan Albergati called Things to Do in the Belly of the Whale. Now it was written in 2008, mm-hmm. so it was before COVID. But it's very interesting. I mean, I don't know that you want to hear the whole piece of it, but you know, it says measure the walls, you know, notch the long days, um, make small fires with the broken holes of fishing boats, practice smoke signals. In other words, when we're in that situation, let people know if you're in distress. Nobody knows unless you send out a smoke signal. Um, you know, if there's so many work on your reports. Um, find the evidence of those before you. Uh, let's and the last piece, which is so powerful. Think of all the things you did and could have done. Remember treading water in the set, center of the still night sea. Mm. Your toes pointing again and again down, down into the black depths. Now, why I like this so much is that. We've tread water before, but mm-hmm. we forgot. You know, we've been in hard situations. Uh, you know, if you look at the history of the world, uh, if you look at your own personal life, times when we thought we weren't going to make it, mm-hmm. and somehow we tread water and we made it. So even when we're in these difficult times, mm-hmm. I like this. Remember treading water. Mm-hmm. That, that's what we have to you know, hold on to so we don't just say, okay, I'm done. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. That was one of the things that landed just most uh, in in an especially personal way for me last week as well, because, and I mean, you wouldn't know this. I don't mean to be self-referential, but it it just, it brought a lot of things kind of back around for me. I I wrote a book uh, that came out again. Well, I guess when I was writing, it was probably 2014, 2015, uh, but called How to Survive a Shipwreck and mm-hmm. coming to a place because right now I'm in a season where there's so much new life. Uh, got got married in uh, May, put out a book in June, moved to oh. Greencastle in July, <laughs> uh-huh. which has been wild. But at the same time, there's there's kind of been this sense of uh, having these moments of feeling like I'm coming up out of the water a bit and this kind of like, oh, you know what? Yeah, you're still here. And having these memories of the moments that weren't all that long ago of just complete despair, not knowing if I was going to survive storm and ocean and like, Oh no, you actually did tread water. And not that everything is, you know, is easy now, but this sense of being able to see that, that you've come somewhere and that maybe even when you feel like you're in the belly of the well, like you're still here. That's one of the things that's really landed with me since, uh, since your lecture. Yeah, I mean, all these um, references to, to, you know, treading water, to being inside the whale, I mean, they really resonate uh, with all of us because we've all been in places like that. We've been in places where we want to run away, we want to hide, we will be in places we'd like to pull the covers up over our heads and please don't bother me, don't call me, I don't want to hear anything. And then, you know, and then somehow we find a way out of it. And what I, I, I want to point to is that the people who are not referred to very often in this story are the sailors. Mm. But were it not for the sailors, wow. uh, Jonah would never have gotten back to Nineveh. Oof. And <laughs> some interpretations says, some interpretations say that it was the sailors who went to Nineveh after mm you know, Jonah was thrown overboard and said to the Ninevites, you better listen to this guy Mm. (laughs) because, you know, if it weren't for him, we'd all be drowned. And so when Jonah went back and said, you better repent to the Ninevites, they said, guess we better, Mm. (laughs) you know, we don't have a choice. So, you know, sometimes there are people we meet along the way who are strangers and we don't Mm. consider them the main part of our story, but were it not for them, Mm. we would never be able to be who we are and do what we have done. Mm. Oh, that's, that's so beautiful. This notion that, you know, we never get anywhere by ourselves and there's, there are, there are, we do have a community that carries us along 
uh, sometimes people that weren't that have it that didn't seem notable in the story at the time, but they were t- but people taking us somewhere. That's yeah, we don't we don't know their names. We don't know anything yes. about them. Uh, they come from a, obviously a different religious understanding, mm. but if it weren't for them, uh, we wouldn't have the story. Yes. And I think that's true for all of us that there are people who are part of their lives, our lives only marginally. Mm. But if not for them, we wouldn't be where we are. Mm. Oh, that's 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 so good. I love the um I love the idea of the the sailors, the people that carry us along and I guess well even knowing I'd be talking to you today, one of the things that um that I had in mind because it felt like a whole nother experience of the story. While I was being carried along on and uh, on an airplane <laughs> coming back to um, to Indianapolis, you know, I had I had fully intended the last few months, especially having this new position, feels like constant connectivity, right? So I planned to purchase Wi-Fi on the plane and catch up on emails. Uh, the Wi-Fi wasn't working for some reason, <laughs> so instead I ended up leisurely reading a Patty Smith book that I'd been carrying around forever but hadn't started. And then just feeling this impulse, I ended up spending like two hours working on this, um, a, a children's story that I'd been working on the periphery. And I realized the last time I worked on that, this little children's story was the last time I was on an airplane, <laughs> which had been months and realizing it was like, and I, you know, that just from having the stillness and the quiet sort of be imposed on me, that something creative came out that wasn't planned, but there, but there hasn't the way my life has been the last few months kind of by necessity, there hasn't been that kind of space. It's, it just really makes me uh, conscious right now in terms of how much I'm missing just because there isn't space for that kind of quiet that sometimes, you know, kind of being thrown overboard imposes, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I would say, I mean, that's absolutely true. I mean, I'm a writer. I write children's books and I write essays uh, and there are times I really want to force it. I want to sit down and I want to write the story and I'm staring at the screen and I write some things and I delete them and, I said, oh, I'm never going to be able to do the story. And then I just go away and I take a walk or I do something else. And somehow then, you know, the idea comes back to me. Mm-hmm. We have to give ourselves permission not to keep hitting our heads against the wall when yes. we're stuck. Uh, that sometimes we need distance to become unstuck. Uh, it's it's not easy. <laughs> we reach, we go through some narrow places mm-hmm. and uh Sometimes, you know, we need uh, time and space apart. That doesn't mean we don't engage the world. So I I go back to Salman Rushdie, you know, is there any place we can go anymore? Mm. Um, That's safe. I mean, he thought he was safe, you know, when he was attacked in Chautauqua, right? I mean, and that's the sense that, you know, there's always this danger lurking. But uh, we do need um, nurturance and sustenance in order to continue um, to hit our heads against the wall, continue to scream out, continue uh, to do this. And I, there's another little mm. story that I recall where this uh, man is uh, yelling from the pulpit and saying, you know, you have to stop doing all that you're doing. You know, there's so much evil in the world and continue screaming and yelling. And uh, somebody says to him, why are you screaming and yelling? Don't you know you're not going to be able to change the world? Mm. And the man says, I may not be able to change the world, but I don't want the world to change me. Mm. I I still need to be, and this was around the Holocaust time. So you'll understand he could, you know, speak out and speak out that, nothing was happening, but I don't want to become a bitter, angry, hateful person. And sometimes I'm going to have to keep doing that to maintain who I am and who I want to be. Uh, That's, um, I love that so much. And the the way that the story invites us into, um, well, in our own narratives of our relationships with our enemies and what inside of us that's, that may be bitter, that's, that's been growing. Uh, which brings me really to, uh, I definitely want to ask you about uh, just how you see Jonah's experience within this text of the, the, the back and forth with God, of, of still not only being angry at his enemies, but being angry that God intends to let his enemies off the hook. Yeah, 
<laughs> That's true. I mean, doesn't that happen in the world that, you know, people who are not very kind um, are successful? Mm. <laughs> I mean, that, that's how the world is. But the situation here is Nineveh at the moment was not evil. Mm. Nineveh later on, you know, destroyed the northern kingdom right. and went to war. But at that moment, they were contrite. So you kind of, you know, we're being asked to do something very difficult to judge a person where they are at the moment. Mm. And I think that's very, you know, that's definitely challenging. Uh, but that's that's where the story takes us. Now, here's what's very interesting. This book was written around the same time as the book of Ruth mm. in the Bible. And the book of Ruth has a totally different trajectory because who is Ruth? She is from the Moabite people uh, and the Moabites are enemy of enemies of Israel. They have even says you should not accept a Moabite into your assembly for generations. And lo and behold, not uh, is Ruth is welcome. Uh, you know, she marries, she becomes an ancestress of King David. Uh, so here you have a story which is open and welcoming of those who were enemies. And then, so you have, what you have side by side, which is so wonderful, is two different experiences and responses to reality. And that's so true of life. You know, are we yes. open and welcome? Do we welcome Ruth into our homes? Um, or are we saying, hey, you know, not this, not that. I don't think there are any easy answers here. Yeah. I think there are difficult questions. And that's, to me, what's most powerful about biblical stories is they raise difficult questions. Yes. They don't really give us answers. We have to work through it and figure out where is our answer. But they do raise important questions, oh. which is, you know, that's how I read the Bible. So in Judaism, yes. uh, the word becomes more words mm. what is central is interpretation mm. so we do not read the bible without an interpretive tradition so there's a whole rabbinic tradition that develops in part at the same time as the christian scripture mm. and it continues to grow through the generations because mm. it continues to be interpreted. What matters is not what the Bible meant, mm. but what the Bible means. Ooh. If it's only what it meant, then how interesting we'll take a look at history and see what it might have meant to the people. But why it's a living text yeah. is because what does it mean yeah. to me where I am? Yeah. And each generation, each person will see a different meaning. And that, that's what's so so wonderful. Mm. So there's this quote by Walt Whitman that I love all the time. I contradict myself very well. I contradict myself. I am vast. I contain multitudes. Mm. So you have this with mm. biblical interpretations. You'll have stories that contradict each other. Yes. Um, it's vast. It contains multitudes. And it invites us to tell our story uh, as we read these stories. Oh, that's that's so powerful to me on so many levels. I mean, for my um, from my experience, especially with having deep roots in the Pentecostal tradition, uh, for all the things that we haven't done well, that's one of the things that I love most, at least theoretically, is this idea that what the text means, that there's this very dynamic, real-time sense of, um, well, the Holy Spirit is breathing and active and always saying something new. Now, my experience, though, has been, I realized, you know, I tried to, I asked you a form of this when you were here, and I realized the, I thought the execution of the, of the question was clumsy, so I'm glad I get to ask it in light of what you just said. I love so much the contrast you drew between Jonah and Ruth, and again, for all the things I love about my tradition and this idea of, like, you know, the, this dynamic sense of the Holy Spirit speaking, you know, we also certainly intersected with the kind of fundamentalism, too, where, you know, we're looking for a very flat reading of the text. And one of the things I find most interesting about what's happening in Jonah is sort of the the way it it calls into question a bit how we how we look at other texts, because especially like when Jonah is preaching his little sermon to God and is quoting back to God everything that God says in Exodus. 
uh, and the whole like, you know, I am the Lord, the Lord, show mercy on who I have, show mercy all the way down to the generations. But there's that turn there where after Jonah has been quoting Exodus verbatim, then when it gets to the part where in Exodus, it would say, but also, you know, punishing on down through the generations, that's where Jonah makes this, this kind of left hook and says, but relenting from, from punishment. And almost this seems to be this way of saying, I always knew you were really about the mercy and, and, and not the punishment in this way. Um, for me, that's fascinating because especially coming from a world where a lot of people are still saying, well, how about the judgment? How about where God says he's going to wipe them out? Like, like we, we like those verses. <laughs> so I'm curious as to what you is the what you would say even about that kind of conversation between you know what we have in Exodus and what we have in in Jonah and how that might help us think about how we interpret texts that actually exist in conversation with each other. Yeah, there's a lot to, to unpack there. Absolutely. So um, look the. The Bible is always seen through the eyes of its interpreter. Mm. There, there is no way of reading it without the interpretation that colors that text. And I, I use the example at DePaul. If uh, I asked you what was the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, you would probably say an apple. Mm. But there are no apple trees in the Middle East. Mm. So in all likelihood, it was a fig tree or a date palm or something like that. Now, why is it an apple? Because when the Vulgate translated the Bible into Latin, they used the word for evil, malum, uh, for the fruit, and it's very similar to the word for apple. So we have been reading that it's an apple because we read the Latin translation. Wow. So we're already interpreting interpreting the text. Hmm. Uh, the other thing I want to say is that often people misunderstand Judaism hmm. when they talk about it uh, over and against Christianity. Hmm. So often what happens is people will say, Oh, well, you know, uh, the God of the Old Testament is a wrathful God of judgment. And the God of the New Testament is a God of grace and compassion. That is incorrect. Mm -hmm. That is a misreading of the Jewish scripture. Yeah. Because the Jewish scripture is as much about love. You shall love the Lord your God mm -hmm. with all your heart uh, and compassion as it is about anything else. Uh, and so what happens in this? So there's always a misunderstanding when you want your tradition to look better yes. than any others. Then you say, hey, well, they weren't so good. We're a lot better. Right. That's not what happened. First of all, you have one text. You have the Hebrew scripture. Mm -hmm. And then that text gets interpreted in two ways. One is in Judaism mm -hmm. through the interpretation of the rabbis in a book that is called a collection called the Talmud. Mm -hmm. At the same time, you get the New Testament that's being created that parallels the rabbinic interpretation. Mm -hmm. So they are two separate ways of understanding a single text. Mm -hmm. I read the Bible through the eyes of the rabbis mm -hmm. uh, and you read the Bible, I'm suggesting, through the eyes of what? the in the christian scriptures mm -hmm. have to say. and sometimes in an effort to make christianity look better mm -hmm. uh saying you should come on our side yes. you know we have a nicer side they would say things uh about jewish scripture that are not true mm -hmm. and and that's unfortunate we mm -hmm. want to understand each tradition from the point of view of those who carry that tradition yes and so this interesting thing about the 13 attributes, which actually I had never paid attention to until I taught this seminar, is what Jonah leaves out is the word truth. Mm. He says, you know, the Lord, I'm, the Lord, uh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and truth. Mm. And, and then, you know, continuing on, it goes. He doesn't, he cuts out truth. Mm. He says, for now I know your compassion and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, repenting of evil. Mm. No truth. Why? Because he doesn't think God is a God of truth. If he mm. were, or if God, the divine were, then um, 
Nineveh would have been destroyed mm. because the truth is they are evil. Mm. Uh, and it's interesting because Jonah's name is what? Jonah ben Amitai. And the word Amitai comes from the Hebrew word emet, mm. which means truth. So it's, you know, kind of uh, striking that he is called Jonah, son of truth. And yes. he feels God is not a God of truth. Mm. He is a God of compassion. So a very interesting uh, discussion there, mm. looking at how he sees God. So you will look at all the prophets and you'll look at all the writings. Every character comes into relationship with God in a different way. Yes. I mean, you can go back to the stories in Genesis. So Abraham's God is called Magen Abraham, mm. that is the shield of Abraham, because God, in his experience, is a shield protecting him. Mm. Um, Jacob's, um, sorry. Oh, no, you're fine. <laughs> Jacob's God is called um, Avir Yaakov, that is the strength of Jacob, because it gets him through all these troubling mm. times. But Isaac's God is called Pachad Yitzchak, the fear of Isaac, because what is Isaac's relationship to God? One of fear as he is lying on the altar with a knife above his head. Ooh. So there isn't one idea about God yes. in the Bible. There are many ideas about God. Mm. So this is Jonah in relationship to the divine telling us his idea. Mm. And there are other ideas that you will find throughout the biblical text, which makes it so rich. Yeah. There isn't one way of yes. talking about it. There are multiple ways. And what happens when you choose only one way, you make that an idol. Mm. Ooh. That's so powerful. That the idea of that the idea of one interpretation is in and of itself an idol. And the invitation then to listen to the symphony of voices that sometimes can be dissonant. And yes, there's can be a kind of unity and diversity, but also sharp edges too, and the contestation between text. And I I am so, this is one of my favorite things you've, that you've done. And I, and I want to be so respectful of your time, but this whole thing of Jonah as son of truth, that just feels especially relevant in this moment, because on the one hand, I want to, you know, give space and honor for, especially for people who have experienced any degree of life on the, on the underside. Like I so get where the call for truth and naming truths that haven't been named is really important. And yet at the same time, it seems like, you know, if, um, if we're only a people who say we're, you know, who are seeking truth as it were, or I, well, I just have to tell the truth, just have to speak my truth, like, et cetera. I wonder what happens to us. Cause it does seem like, you know, inevitably, which seems like something that's within the Jonah text as well. Um, we're going to be on the wrong side of truth sometimes too. And we're also we also find ourselves in need of forgiveness. And so I would love if you would just kind of speak to sort of that tension of like, yes, there are truths that need to be named. And yet precisely the much of the power of Jonah is that, yes, um, th these these are people who are named as enemies for a reason because they do end up um, wiping out people. And there are reasons for for heartbreak in that way. And, and, and what do we do? How do we forgive when harm really has been done? I, I would just, I would love for you to speak to that tension. Yeah. So there is a uh, discussion among the rabbis of whether the world should have been created. Mm. Uh, and they have uh, a, a series of angels. I may not remember it exactly. I was prepared for that, but uh, there is an angel of peace uh, and an angel of love and an angel of truth. There may be another angel in there, could be justice. Um, and they argue whether the world should be created. They argue before God, you know, and, and you know, peace says, oh no, you shouldn't create the world because it's going to go to war. People are going to go to war. And love says, well, you should create the world because people are going to love one another. And there's a tie and, and, truth god decides to cast truth to the ground mm. because truth would mean yeah there's going to be war and there's going to be hate and everything else but i still want to create the world mm. regardless of all that and then there's a verse that said truth will once again rise from the earth Oof. so in a sense you know there are 
truths that we need to recognize. But sometimes we also have to recognize that people change, that, um, you know, we can move forward, that there can be reconciliation. I don't think it's easy. Sure. (laughs) I think it's hard and it requires a lot of work. But, you know, so like there's another uh, understanding in Judaism that you should create shalom bite, peace at home. Mm. Does that mean you should tell your spouse you look pretty obnoxious today? You know, I don't know why I didn't comb your hair. They don't put it quite this way. No, because in order to create peace, you say, wow, you're looking really good. (laughs) It's not the truth, (laughs) right? But it's important because the higher truth is to have peace at home. Mm. So sometimes, you know, you don't say it exactly like it is because you know it will be hurtful. Yes. Um, so it's a different way of looking at truth. I mean, it's certainly different when you look at history and how do we tell the truths of history? Uh, how do we allow voices that have not spoken before to speak? You know, how do we include people whose stories were not included? Mm. That's that's essential that we need to do. Mm. Oh, that's so wonderful. And this idea of being summoned to kind of the kind of higher truth and, uh, you know, different different definitions of that of that word and and thinking about um you know greater good that's uh that's so amazing i well this conversation i feel like first of all just life altering i already know i'm going to listen to it 15 times myself i'm like i feel like this would be life changing for everybody um it's but i would maybe as a final question i would love and wherever you want to go with this would be great but I, i i keep i wondered what you might say by way of um blessing, counsel, whatever kind of whatever kind of word you might want to give. But I just thinking about Jonah in particular as a story of someone who's very much in an in-between space, in a liminal space. So Jonah's not where he was uh, when he's in the belly of the whale, but he's not yet where he's going. And it seems like so many people are in a moment where they are in that kind of liminal in-between space. And I would just love just, just whatever you would want to say to people who find themselves in that belly of the whale, the kind of the ambiguity of uh, of not being where they were, and yet the sense of not yet being where they're headed either. Well, I guess I would say two th- things. Remember treading water. Mm. Remember you've been through this before. And then there is, I believe it's from a poet, but it's one of my very favorite blessings that, that conclude a poem that says, may a joy keep you. Uh, mm. It's even in the midst of all the pain that we're feeling, we somehow have to find some joy in life. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's with a friend, you know, maybe it's with a piece of music, um, maybe it's with a piece of art, maybe it's a walk in the garden, but we need joys to keep us. Otherwise, why go on? Yeah. May a joy keep you. Oh. That's thank you so much. How love that. Thank you so much for that. And I know that for me today, even this question of where are you finding hope? Um, I just I'm finding so much hope in this conversation and in revisiting Jonah right now. And um, just thank you for the gift because I feel like for so many people this is going to bring hope. I landing the plane for sure, but I wanted to make sure to at least give a plug because I loved it so much for um your your newest book uh because i was reading that on the and even this conversation about multiple perspectives in mm-hmm. in the text actually writing from the perspective of the whale i thought that was yeah. so beautiful <laughs> yeah so there's this book that came out fairly recently it's called the raven and the dove the big fish and the stubborn donkey and it's three bible stories from the point of view of the animals the raven and the dove in noah's ark uh the big fish is Jonah's well and Jonah and the fish talks <laughs> and uh, the stubborn donkey is a little less familiar story, but it's about Balaam who uh, is told to go curse Israel, but can't can only bless Israel. And he really learns that from his donkey who talks. So, you know, that's what's so wonderful that you can read these stories through many different eyes mm-hmm. and different perspectives. And that sort of deepens our understanding of what's going on. And the other thing is, okay, so I, you know, I'm trained, I've studied Bible, I've studied the interpretations, and you say, well, great, you can do that, but I can't. That is not true. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I may have resources that you know you may not have, but every story is meant to talk to every individual. And you just have to find your place in this. What part of that story is about you? That's what's really important. Are you in the well? Um, are you outside the well? Uh, there's so many questions. Are you the sailor? Mm. <laughs> you know, are you a Ninevite? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's, are you the whale who is the womb for people? Mm. You know, are you the one who is the nurturer, uh, who's helping people process difficulty as a comforter, as you mm. do with hospice? Um, you know, when you start think asking those questions, then the story comes alive. Mm. Wow. Well, it's certainly uh, the story's certainly coming alive for me today, and so appreciate that invitation to find ourselves in in this story, the story of these texts, and broader story of God and what's happening in the world. Um, what a beautiful conversation, Rabbi Sandy! I cannot thank you enough uh, well, for the gift you. of your time. Happy to be with you. <laughs>